Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Lindsay Campbell talks about Brooklyn Grange and the Navy Yard, using the 50,000 square foot rooftop farm to discuss the history of community gardening and urban agriculture in New York City, particularly since the 1970s, when much of today's environmental governance network was formed. Growing food in cities is not a new phenomenon, although it has obviously become very popular recently, as a very diverse set of social movements have found promise in it. But urban gardening spikes historically during times of crisis, and it was exactly during the period of so-called urban decline, when some 11,000 vacant lots blighted the divested neighborhoods of the city, that New York's 500-plus gardens were established, and later institutionalized after a dramatic fight with Mayor Giuliani. Here, Campbell gives us an overview of that history, and what grassroots organizations and policymakers are doing to protect and encourage gardening and farming in New York City today. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Lindsay Campbell, a research social scientist with the USDA Forest Service, and I'm speaking to you from the Brooklyn Grange rooftop farm in New York City. Let's unpack that a bit. First, what is the Forest Service doing in New York City? And why social science? You may be familiar with the Forest Service as the agency that manages our national forests and grasslands, but in this city, we don't own or manage any land. We focus on research and development in collaboration with our partners, which include the New York City Parks Department, the largest land manager in the city, as well as various nonprofit, university, and community-based groups. Our mission is to enhance quality of life by conducting, supporting, and communicating research about the city as a social ecological system. And that's where the social science comes in. I'm a human geographer, so I study people's relationship to place. Much of my work centers on stewardship, acts of caretaking and claims making on the local environment. Stewardship is not the same as ownership. It can occur across land jurisdictions and it can take many forms from hands-on work to advocacy to educational programs. In particular, I focus quite a bit on civic stewards, so nonprofits and community-based groups and their role in working with the public and private sectors to shape the governance and form of nature in the city. So here in this podcast for Open House New York Weekend, I will discuss why and how people are stewarding farms and gardens all across the city. Which brings us to the Grange, What exactly is a farm doing on a rooftop in Brooklyn? Well, as it turns out, quite a lot, actually. It's doing much more than just feeding people. It's serving as a demonstration site, an educational hub, a training ground, and part of a network of like-minded sites and groups that are helping us think about how we might transform our landscapes and food systems in novel ways. Before we dive in on that, however, I want to talk briefly about the history of gardening in New York City and some of the entrepreneurial farming efforts we're seeing recently. I'll be drawing on the findings in my recent book, City of Forests, City of Farms, as well as collaborative research I've done as part of the Forest Service's New York City Urban Field Station. Now first, let's get a sense of place. The Brooklyn Grange rooftop farm sits in the middle of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, 12 stories in the air. We are looking down on 50,000 square feet of well-tended rows of greens, veggies, and herbs. If you were to look down at your feet, it might look like almost any other small-scale farm. But if you raise your eyes above your waist, you have 360-degree panoramic views of the waterfront, downtown Brooklyn, and the Manhattan skyline across the East River. 
The Navy Yard was a major hub of shipbuilding in American history, perhaps the center, dating back to the nation's founding. And you can hear more about that in Mark Wilson's podcast for this series. Today, however, it's being transformed into a hub for innovation and incubator space. Light manufacturers, artisans, and tech companies all occupy space at the Navy Yard. So it makes sense that this 21st century industrial business park also includes a site and a group like the Brooklyn Grange, which, founded in 2012, has been working to reshape our sense of what is possible for the future of urban food systems and New York City's built environment. And it's hardly alone. Let's take a deeper look at the history of that movement now. And let's start by clarifying some terminology first, since you'll hear me go back and forth with the phrases community gardening and urban agriculture in this podcast. These are connected, but they are not synonymous. First, this phrase urban agriculture, which is often depicted nowadays as if it were something very new. Actually, people have been growing food in cities since the very dawn of cities, so there's a long history of that practice here. Ditto community gardens. Often these are depicted today as urban farms. But while they can be important agricultural sites, not all gardens focus on food production, and not all urban farms are community managed either. What is really meant by community garden is any place that is community managed open space, and that space can support anything, recreation, gathering, culture, Again, it sometimes includes, but is not exclusively for, agriculture. I highly recommend Laura Lawson's book, City Bountiful, about the history of community gardening in America, if you want to learn more. And one of the things Lawson's and other historians of this subject have found is that we often see an uptick in community gardening in times of crisis. Lawson mentions the Great Depression and World War II. Today, similarly, I'll be focusing on the 1970s, the so-called era of fiscal crisis here in New York City. Political ecology teaches us that transformations of nature often intersect with social, political, and economic change. We see this very clearly in New York's fiscal crisis, a major turning point in the history of stewardship, management of open space, and governance in the city. Due to multiple connected structural processes, New York City found itself in a fiscal crisis. Deindustrialization, suburbanization, capital flight, arson, white flight, insurance fraud, inflation, and economic stagnation all combined to create major disinvestment manifested in a landscape of vacant lots and empty buildings across the city. New York was bankrupt, and conservatives in the Ford administration made a symbolic point of not lending it assistance since the major industrial cities of the North, today's Rust Belt, faced similar circumstances. You probably know the infamous Daily News headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead. But not everyone left the city. Many stayed. And in this time of disinvestment, there was also great civic innovation, creativity, pride, and self-help. This was an era of homesteading and community gardening, of cooperative creation and street art. There was an explosion of community gardens, most concentrated in the neighborhoods that had the greatest disinvestment primarily lower-income communities, with many communities of color and immigrant groups. The Lower East Side, East Harlem, South Bronx, Central Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, and East New York, just to name a few. In each of these neighborhoods, thousands of local residents rolled up their sleeves and transformed vacant lots into veritable oases of recreation, culture, and food production. These community gardens served as important cultural repositories. Some grew culturally specific plants for food, medicine, and ritual. Many others built casitas, or little houses. 
which are hallmarks of Puerto Rican landscapes. Others staged music festivals honoring the African diaspora. Others created art, often from salvaged or reappropriated materials. What government could not provide, residents did themselves. Everything from park maintenance to street tree pruning to trash removal, civic groups established themselves to take on government's core functions and keep neighborhoods and landscapes safe, maintained, and vibrant. Many of these organizations founded in the 70s continue today. Indeed, they are now often citywide, professionalized NGOs that support all different forms of citizen engagement and environmental stewardship, such as the Citizens Committee for New York City, the Council on the Environment for New York City, now known as Grow NYC, and the Trees New York Citizen Pruner Program. So the origins of our current environmental governance network in New York City are very much rooted in this period of change. The city's Green Thumb Community Gardening Program was also founded in 1978. Originally housed in the Department of City Administrative Services, Green Thumb offered short-term leases for gardeners to work on publicly owned land. Much of its funding came from community development block grants focused on low-income areas. Now the program is housed within the Parks Department, and this is unique. Many other cities have community garden programs, but they are not often so close to municipal government. Green Thumb persists to this day and currently supports approximately 550 gardens and more than 20,000 people with license agreements, technical assistance, and free materials, such as soil, compost, and plants. They also play an important organizing role citywide, particularly through their annual Grow Together in the Spring, Harvest Festival in the Fall, and dozens of skill-building workshops all year round. Community gardeners were mobilized into a social movement when the gardens were threatened by auction and sale by Mayor Giuliani in the 1990s. The story of this crisis is a podcast in its own right, and I encourage you to read Mal Van Hassel's The Struggle for Eden for a more complete story of what happened. In a nutshell, Mayor Giuliani was adamantly opposed to community gardens. New York City's economy was back on the upswing, and City Hall framed the matter as an issue of gardens versus housing with Giuliani targeting community gardens as potential sites for housing development. He transferred a number of sites from Parks Jurisdiction to Housing Preservation and Development, HPD, the city's affordable housing development agency. In May 1999, the city placed 113 of these gardens on unrestricted auction to go to the highest bidder. The bulldozing and imminent auction of these gardens led to large-scale protests by gardeners and their allies who rallied at City Hall and built encampments in threatened garden sites. Older organizations like Green Gorillas and newer organizations like More Gardens, formed in response to the threat, banded together to organize protests. One group of activists, the Brooklyn Alliance of Neighborhood Gardens, sought effectively to counter the narrative that housing and gardens existed in a one-to-one trade-off with a postcard that put the matter rather starkly. 11,000 vacant lots in the city, 500 community gardens. The community garden crisis and the social movement that mobilized in response became a national and even international news story. In the final hours, the New York State Supreme Court stopped the unrestricted auction, required a review of the potential environmental impact of the sale, and issued a cease and desist order to stop the imminent development of garden sites. This provided a window in which two nonprofits negotiated a purchase of numerous threatened garden sites. The Trust for Public Land bought 62 gardens and New York Restoration Project bought 52 gardens for a total price of $4.2 million. 
A memorandum of agreement was created by then-Attorney General Elliot Spitzer and the Corporation Council of New York City with specific lists of garden parcels in different categories of protection, management, and use. Legacies from this crisis continue to be felt in present-day community garden coalitions. We see this in the patchwork of land jurisdiction and ownership that characterizes the gardens today. And activists continue to work to preserve sites against development. More than a dozen gardens on HPD land have been slated for housing development under the de Blasio administration, although there has been nothing like the broad-scale development threat or resistance that occurred under Giuliani. Overall, the garden crisis of the 90s showed that place matters, that garden sites are not interchangeable and easily swapped, and that people will organize and fight to protect these sites of social meaning. So what motivates people to engage in community gardening? Why do they do it? Clearly, we can see that gardeners mobilized in the face of a threat, but on a more everyday basis, there is value in understanding what attracts people to this practice of community stewardship. My colleagues Nancy Santi and Erica Svensson led a longitudinal study of community gardeners in 2003 and 2011 to answer this very question, why do people garden? They identified six main themes that I'll share in rank order with some illustrative quotes from gardens. All of them reflect very basic and abiding human emotions. First, across both years, a majority of gardeners described their motivation as based on personal enjoyment or fulfillment, including spiritual, emotional, or health benefits that they got. Summed up in a common response, quote, I love to garden. Many gardeners used the word love and therapy in their answers. While this theme was less prevalent in 2003, in 2011, about a third of those interviewed said they garden because of cultural heritage, family, identity, or past experiences. One gardener said, it connects me to my grandfather and my mother who were big gardeners. Gardeners also said it improved the neighborhood or environment. For example, quote, it helps to create a place in the community that people feel safe and at peace. In both years, gardeners cited social reasonings for gardening, such as, quote, it's great to get together with everybody, to be out in the open air, create something that makes the rest of the people in the neighborhood feel great. They love to come over to the garden. Many gardeners describe motivations having to do with education, such as, quote, I like being out here, especially with the kids that we have coming to the garden. When they come during the school season, they plant food and they watch it grow, and I can explain everything to them, show them how to plant. Finally, there was an uptick in the number of gardeners who said they were motivated by growing food. One gardener said, quote, food, fresh herbs, food independence, being able to grow fresh things close by. So although community gardens are certainly about much more than food, they are also very much entwined in an alternate way of envisioning a more localized, differently distributed food system and connecting people on a very personal basis to the food they grow and eat. This increased reference to food was also clearly a reflection of the times. National and local media, celebrity engagement, and new funding streams were all indicators of rising attention to urban agriculture and local food during the 2000s. At the national scale, this included First Lady Michelle Obama's White House Organic Garden, created in the spring of 2009. Funding from national foundations, such as Robert Wood Johnson, focused on healthy eating and walkable communities as a response to the obesity and diabetes epidemics and the highly popular food writing by authors Michael Pollan, Mark Bittman, and others. Celebrity chefs also played roles as public figures, advocates, and donors to urban agriculture programs. 
including Alice Waters of Chez Panisse, Dan Barber of Blue Hill, Mario Batali, and Rachel Ray. Locally, New York City now has a variety of new farms and gardens across a range of sites, including public lands, private lands, rooftops, vacant lots, and greenhouses. One notable difference from prior community garden efforts is that many of these new entrepreneurial models are selling their produce. Social differences crop up in terms of race, class, gender, ethnicity, and cultural background, an issue which has been at the fore of food justice activism, which focuses explicitly on structural inequalities. Many low-income people, often African-American and Hispanic, endured decades-long disinvestment, crime, and violence in their communities and used gardening in response as a neighborhood stabilization strategy. Now, New York City is booming economically in comparison to the 70s and 80s. As such, there's a new demographic of white, more affluent people engaged in urban agriculture. The new wave of engagement has been met with increased attention by the media. Stories focus on the use of technologies like green roofs, aquaponics, aeroponics. Charismatic individuals like ex-financiers, self-starting entrepreneurs, urbanites fleeing to rural farm life. And quirky farm stories that feel out of place in an urban context, keeping chickens and bees. Some interviewees from my book noted a disparity in media coverage and attention between longtime community gardeners and next-generation urban agriculturalists. Others disagreed and argued that the increased attention is good for the movement since it helps build broader coalitions and increase momentum. Whatever the case, it's clear that urban agriculture is not comprised of a single narrow constituency, but rather diverse sets of people interested in managing urban land and changing the food system and their roles in it. Some in the urban ag and local food movement focus on individual consumer behaviors. Others focus on developing new markets, institutions, or policies. Still others focus on larger kinds of structural change. Locavorism has an emphasis on regional agriculture and the regional food shed. It works to link urban consumers with upstate farmers via community-supported agriculture, or CSAs, and farmers markets and it involves some hyper-local urban ag efforts focused on food production, such as rooftop farms. Food access work often focuses on mitigating food deserts, as well as addressing the linked public health concerns of obesity, diabetes, and hunger. In particular, with the Department of Education as the largest public school system in the nation, the city plays a large role here as a purchaser of food and can emphasize changing school lunches and in some cases, creating school gardens and salad bars. Activists are also involved in more radical efforts around changing the power dynamics in the food system so that everyone not only has access to fresh, affordable, healthy, culturally appropriate food, but that they have a say and a stake in what the food system looks like. Food justice and food sovereignty folks work in alliance with other social movements focused on racial justice, LGBTQ rights, workers' rights, and even transnational rural peasant movements, such as La Via Campesina. Local and municipal sustainability planning is also on the rise. Efforts like New York City's Plan YC 2030 reflect a rescaling of urban environmental governance that is occurring globally. Created in 2007 during the Bloomberg administration and updated every four years thereafter, this government plan seeks to accommodate the million new residents projected to join New York City by 2030. But despite all the recent burgeoning interests locally and nationally, gardens, farms, and local food received no mention in the 2007 version of Plan YC. 
then we might use this lack of a top-down agenda to understand how planning and natural resource management occurs in the absence of that sort of leadership. This is the subject of my book, City of Forests, City of Farms, which compares the ways in which urban agriculture and urban forestry fared in New York City's sustainability plan. I found that the food system was seen by City Hall as too complex, cross-sectoral, and multi-scalar for local government to effectively address. It fell outside the bounds of most municipal agencies' mandates. Urban agriculture was also critiqued for a lack of quantified data about its benefits. And advocates for farms and gardens lacked access to channels of decision-making. City Hall perceived them as a disgruntled constituency with which they had previously tangled during the 1990s garden crisis under Giuliani. Moreover, local decision-makers consistently voiced the sense that the city is already so developed that there was a lack of space available for farming. Many respondents said, quote, this is not Detroit. Space constraints have led to experimentation with alternative growing sites, including rooftops, backyards, and temporary spaces. One debate carried over from the garden crisis of the 90s is the question of whether there is sufficient space in the city for housing and gardens. Some call it a, quote, zero-sum game. In response, both academics and civic scientists have initiated studies examining the current and potential amount of space for urban agriculture in New York City and how productive current agricultural sites are. One study in 2012 from Kubi Ackerman and co-authors estimated that there were approximately 5,000 acres of space citywide of vacant land that was potentially suitable for urban agriculture. Other studies have aimed to measure urban agriculture's potential, such as the Five Borough Farm Project, which has a comprehensive set of environmental and social indicators about agricultural impacts. Building upon the notion of the lack of space in the developed city, one key critique circulating is the claim that, quote, you can't feed New York City through urban agriculture. Current practitioners of urban agriculture are working to counter that concern by focusing on the social, environmental, economic, educational, and even spiritual benefits of their work. Even entrepreneurs who are focused on growing and selling food within New York City often see themselves as having a social mission beyond food production alone. Here's a quote. Our goal is not to supplement or supplant all the rural farmers. The goal is not to feed New York City. The goal is to educate New York City and green New York City and feed some of us. So urban agriculturalists facing the constraints of space, cost, and productivity in the developed city have allied with others to advance their cause. And a local or regional food systems framework has provided a large tent and somewhat unifying storyline for anti-hunger and food justice activists, rural and urban producers, locavore consumers, and public health advocates focused on healthy eating and the obesity and diabetes crisis. This food system focus has more political traction than a focus on urban ag alone, meaning that making food rather than gardens or farms the policy object opens up space for creative maneuvering at different scales and moments in the system. Indeed, many recent municipal food policies address food production, processing, distribution, consumption, and post-consumption. City Hall's failure to engage with food policy also enabled other public figures to become prominent in this arena and simultaneously provided opportunities for civic activists to elevate their agenda too. Two public officials who were both mayoral hopefuls at the time created food visions and plans. Scott Stringer, then the Manhattan Borough President, 
created Food in the Public Interest and later Food NYC, working collaboratively with 600 activists convened at two large conferences. The position of borough president has few formal authorities, but is a visible office in New York City politics. And Stringer used the bully pulpit to push dialogue really across the whole policy spectrum leftward, even though many of those policies had little hope of being implemented. Creating visionary and progressive plans is a political strategy, after all. Foodworks came next, created by Christine Quinn, then Speaker of the City Council. One key catalyzing moment was the 2009 Brooklyn Food Conference, where Quinn spoke to a crowd of over a thousand people and realized that she had found a sizable constituency. Foodworks combined aspirational goals related to state and federal policy with municipal actions and local legislation that could be affected immediately. At the same time, advocates targeted the 2011 update to Plan YC, showing up en masse to public meetings. As a result of this iterative plan writing and direct advocacy, food issues did appear in Plan YC 2.0, as the update was called. The city committed to creating a searchable database of vacant public land, expanding gardening and farming via green thumb, school gardens, and farms on public housing grounds, waiving rooftop greenhouses from counting towards FAR for building density limits, and enhancing the accounting of Department of Education purchases of state and regional food. But, and this is a big but, because of the 2008 global financial crisis, which happened between the first and second iterations of Plan YC, no new capital dollars were committed to these goals. Plan YC 2.0 therefore contained essentially no new concepts or ideas related to urban ag or food systems. It is much more reserved in scope and ambition than either the Stringer or Quinn plans, but the imprimatur of Plan YC nonetheless helped bring food issues into the fold of New York City government, even if somewhat nominally at first. To put it more academically, you might say that we can understand these plans as doing discursive and political work, both as procedural or organizing moments and as written artifacts. So although Plan YC represented a major turning point for some other components of urban nature, such as the massive investment in Marshall for the urban forests through the Million Trees NYC campaign, in the case of urban agriculture, it was just another step on a much longer path. The advocacy, policies, and innovations continue to evolve. For example, in 2016, the USDA Farm Service Agency created a new position for an urban outreach coordinator in New York City, a sign of potential future directions for the agency. In addition to federal funding, Green Thumb's municipal budget was increased in fiscal year 2016, allowing for seven new outreach staff. And de Blasio's Building Healthy Communities initiative focused resources and programming on 12 underserved neighborhoods citywide including a plan to expand urban agriculture on NYCHA public housing grounds in several of these neighborhoods. All signs of progress and investment in this space. More recently, Councilmember Rafael Espinal and Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams have gotten involved in the conversation, creating new legislation in support of a comprehensive urban agriculture plan, which would likely include zoning changes, spatial planning, and budgetary allocations. The first result of this legislation was the creation of a city website on urban agriculture as a one-stop shop for information and resources. Initially, Espinal's bill focused on urban ag as an economic development engine, emphasizing more high-tech, hydroponic, aeroponic, and rooftop efforts. It failed to acknowledge the full legacy and ongoing importance of community gardens, both in his district and citywide. 
but activist coalitions began educating him, and Espinal's vision has since expanded to champion both entrepreneurial agriculture and community gardening, evidence that community gardens are still quite active and organized in the policy space. Most recently, in August 2019, current council speaker Corey Johnson has just released a new agenda, Growing Food Equity in New York City. Among numerous other proposals, the report aims to improve food governance and replace the current patchwork approach to food policy through strengthening the Office of Food Policy and creating a Food Policy and Urban Agriculture Plan. Institutionalized support for urban agriculture through creating the Office of Urban Agriculture, and finally, both empower and protect community gardens. So as you visit the Brooklyn Grange for Open House New York weekend, I invite you to consider this rich and layered history that lies behind it. These rooftop farmers are part of a dynamic social movement, and this is what makes community gardens, urban agriculture, and food systems work so exciting. There are so many areas where one can engage, learn by doing, and actually have a say in the future of the city. If you're visiting the Grange, I hope you enjoy what you see. And if you'd like to learn more, there are hundreds of organizations and resources to connect with in this city. Enjoy Open House New York weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.